Ezra chapter 3. We uh, last week saw the returning people <coughs> coming in the book of Ezra. Coming back, and this week we get to see them. <coughs> pardon me. We get to see them rebuild the altar and the foundations. I just want to remind you as we start. Um, where's the clicker? There it is. Just remind you as we start that there are always some warnings in Ezra and Nehemiah that things are not exactly what they're supposed to be. But yes, <laughs> this is gonna be fun. Stay. <laughs> All right, I'm just going to do it without a mic today. Um, sure, let's use that one. <clears throat> See, I give my wife the nice mic so that you get a pretty voice when we sing and so that she can hear herself. Okay, Ezra chapter 3. Let's go. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one, as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with, the, with his kinsmen, and they built an, the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening and they kept the feast of booths as it is written. And they offered <coughs> the, daily, the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings that everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now... In the second year after coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, 
together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and, and the Levites and their sons and their brothers. And when the temple laid the when the temp, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the direction of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when, the pra- when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shouts from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted with great joy, and the sound was heard. I'm sorry, the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. So, as we come to this passage, we are uh, witnessing the altar being restored and rebuilt. And Ezra begins this passage giving you a few things about what's going on. First thing to note is they rebuilt as one people. They rebuilt as if they were one. They're rebuilding as one. So the the people come. I just want you to imagine it for a minute. 70 years they've been without a temple of any kind, without an altar to offer sacrifices on. They've been in a foreign land and they've come back now to the place where they're supposed to be. And I just want you to imagine the city is in ruins. There's nothing there. It's been torn down. The temple's been torn down, torn apart. The foundations are unrecognizable. They can't build on what used to be there. But there's one place that is still obvious. That's where the altar was. And they walk into Jerusalem and they see the city in ruins. They see the temple is no longer there. But there is a spot that they know where the altar is. And as one people, they come as one. They gather together as one. One united purpose one mission, but everything's in disarray. Everything is broken. And they come together as one. And then they begin this rebuilding process. They begin this work. You see, in Scripture, united worship is often how we overcome things that are broken. When we unite together in worship, it's often how we overcome Things that are broken. Think about your own life. When you have avoided coming together with the body of Christ in worship, don't things feel harder? It's just the way God wired us. We are designed to worship together in community. I always like to say Christianity is not a lone wolf religion. You don't do this by yourself. You have, even if you are in a place where you are the only Christian, 
You have what Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses that have come before you and are around you spiritually. And you have the prayers of the saints that are currently with you and the spirit of God residing in you. You are never alone as a Christian. You are never alone as a Christian. We can testify to this because we see it in every missionary story we ever read. That there is no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. We are together always. And we come together as a unified group to worship. And, and what did they come together to do? When they showed up, they saw the altar. The first thing that they did was set up an altar. It's the first thing they did as a unified group. Unified worship often overcomes our difficulties. Unified worship often overcomes our difficulties. Now, I just want to be clear. When I'm using the term worship, I'm using it very broadly. Worship is very simply the reaction of God observed. So we react to God, and when we see Jesus, when we see God, we worship. What the reaction is, is worship. That can be life change, it can be song, it can be writing, it can be, it can be looking at the sky and delighting in His presence. It can be talking with somebody over a good over a good meal. It can be hanging out with people. Indeed, Jesus seemed to like to worship around a table with food. That seemed to be his primary mode of worship in the, in the Gospels, at least the primary mode that's recorded for us. David loved to sing. That guy's always singing. He's walking around singing, and when people aren't singing, he's taking off his coat and singing in front of them and then dancing and making everybody else feel awkward. This is... This is worship. He sees God and he bursts out into song. I mean, I have some friends that are like that. They're few and far between. But when you, when you go somewhere and they hear something about God and they start singing randomly at the table, you're like, well, I guess I just have to wait for you to finish the song, right? Before I can keep talking. This is, this is the reaction of God observed. It happens differently in all of us. We're all designed differently. But worship Unified worship together is what overcomes so much of the trials and difficulties in life. And that's what they do first when they come here. Second, uni unity, united worship gives purpose to the community. As they come together, they have a purpose and a goal, and that's the rest of this chapter. They know what they're doing. When we come together and worship, we know what we're doing. When we start doing kingdom work together, when as a congregation we start doing kingdom work together, when we're trying to reach our neighbors, when we're trying to live like Jesus at work and at home and in the dark, when we're trying to do that and we're contacting each other and texting each other going, hey, I need prayer for this. I need help with this. I need this thing. We need to work together. That unified worship, that unified worship gives us purpose in community. It gives us purpose and we have value and purpose and we belong. So from the outset, right here, they come and they come as one. They're united together. Second, they begin rebuilding as one. And they come in the seventh month. So they're rebuilding as one and they come in the seventh month. This is a, this is a big month. The seventh month of the year was essentially halfway through the year. The first month is where Passover is. So, uh, but we'll get to that in a second. So they come in the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month, this is the Feast of Trumpets. Now we find that in Numbers chapter 21, verses 1 through 6, it describes what you're supposed to do at the Feast of 20, of, 
I'm sorry, the Feast of Trumpets. Numbers 29, verses 1 through 6. This is a, there's some things that are emphasized in that passage, and I don't know if I put it up there for you. I don't think I did. No, I didn't. Okay. So there's some things that are emphasized in the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, There's no regular work to be done. It says you are not to do regular work. You are to take this day off. It's not to be regular work. It's a, there's an emphasis here on regular work. There is work to be done. There is things, you know, somebody's got to blow the trumpet. Somebody's got to do, God is reasonable. So when we have feast days where God says you are not to work, that, that means that you're not to be doing the regular everyday work that you do with your hands and your, your things. But the Jews tended to take this too far. And we know they took it too far because Jesus scolds them for it. Which of you having a donkey falling into a hole would not lift him out of the hole on the Sabbath? Don't take it too far. You're supposed to delight in the Lord. You're supposed to do things. You're supposed to be active. The feasts all had things you did. And if everything you did was work, regular work, then you'd be breaking this rule problem is not everything you did is obviously regular work some of it is just worship remember that the word worship in the old testament is also used to serve to serve so it's also used to say service which is a form of doing something which means that there are times when you are worshiping the lord by the work of your hand And it's not regular, laborious toil and work. It is a delightful act of worship. There are times when that happens. The Lord is a reasonable and good God. And when He calls you to feast, He calls you to feast. He doesn't call you to make sure that you're trapped in a room with your arms bound down and sitting there quietly until you can get back to work the next day. No, He's calling you to feast, to party, to blow the trumpets, to to rejoice in what the Lord has done, to remember the things of the past and to look forward to the day of the future. That's what all these feasts had past remembrances and future expectation. The Feast of Trumpets being past remembrance when they would blow the trumpets and you'd hear the atoning word of God and then there would be the atoning sacrifice. There'd be these things that would happen on the first day of the seventh month. The trumpets would be blasting. This is an ancient form of a jazz concert. This is loud music being proclaimed. People are banging cymbals. There's rhythm going on. There's dances happening in the courtroom. I know that most of us grew up Baptist and in the South, but dancing happens in the scripture. You got to get over it. So we, we have these things that happen. And it's a feast and a party. And on the seventh day, there's supposed to be this day, or on the seventh month, the first day of the month was supposed to be a day of refreshment in which there are food offerings, festivals to the Lord. You see this also in Leviticus chapter 23. Verses 23 through 25. This is a kind of New Year's celebration. Everybody came and it was, it was loud and there were trumpets blasting. So the first day of the seventh month, they're rebuilding the altar. They stop for a moment and they have this party. Next, on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the 10th day of the seventh month, they would jump into the day of atonement. The day in which uh, there's a sacrifice made on behalf of the high on behalf of the people by the high priest. Now, don't confuse this for Passover. This is not Passover. Passover happens at the beginning of the year. This happens in the middle. 
So this is the seventh month, and the Day of Atonement would come, and Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11, immediately following the previous passage that talked about the Feast of Trumpets, you can read about the Day of Atonement. So that's Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11, and Leviticus uh, 16 through 17. And on this day, the high priest would take two goats, and he would take one goat, and he'd put his hand on it, and he'd pray a prayer of repentance on behalf of the people, and then they'd take the other goat, and he would sacrifice that goat. So he'd sacrifice one goat. The other goat, he'd pray, and he'd pray a prayer of repentance, and then they'd let that goat go into the, into the wild. There's a ton to see in that passage. It's two chapters long, chapter Leviticus chapter 16 and 17. There's a ton to see in that. I would urge you to read that and delight in what the Lord teaches you about atoning sacrifice and sins being cast as far as the east is from the west and being cast into the, the depths. This is amazing. We're not going to cover it today. So those of you who were all excited about that just now, um, we can talk about it at lunch. So the, uh, you've got this atoning sacrifice. He has the two goats. He kills one. He lets the other goat go. And that's the concept of a scapegoat. We have that phrase scapegoat in modern English. The scapegoat, the one on whom you put all the fault and then drive out, that's the scapegoat. That comes from Leviticus 16 and 17. That phrase comes from Leviticus 16 and 17. It is the idea that there's a scapegoat who takes on sin and goes out. And one of the beautiful things about the Day of Atonement is these ritual practices and these things serve as a reminder that God provides a way for sin to be covered. So that his people can meet with him. God provides a way for sin to be covered so that his people can meet with him. The high priest wore these bells at the bottom of his robe. And at the beginning of the uh, day of atonement, he would start outside. Outside uh, in, the, in, the, in the tabernacle time, he'd start outside the camp in The days of Israel where there was Jerusalem and a wall, he'd start outside the temple and you'd hear him as he walked through these bells jingling. And as everyone, I want you just to get this in your head, as everyone heard the sound of him walking, they were hearing the music of God's salvation for the souls of the people. Of the atoning sacrifice that was about to be made. They'd hear this jingle. Now there's a nonsensical thing about a rope being tied around him and him going into the Holy Land when they heard the bell stop ringing the news. Dead, so the poem. That's not true. No, that's true. That was made up. Somebody made that up a long time ago. Those bells had much more significance than just an alarm sound for when he stopped moving. Those bells reminded us of the music and glory of God's salvation that God had come to save. And so you heard this tinkling sound as he walked into the Holy of Holies. You heard him as he was moving. There's this constant ringing of the bells of salvation. Oh, and how that has come down through the centuries for us. God provides a way of salvation. And the high priest would walk through and he would, he would have been ritually cleansed and he would walk through and he would take the, the lamb, he would slaughter it on the altar, he'd take the blood of the lamb in a basin, he'd go into the Holy of Holies, he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat, this bloody thing that was just, uh, there's, 
There's sprinkling everywhere. He'd, he'd cover the sins of the people with this beautiful sign of salvation. And that was the day of atonement, day 10. Then, same month, day 15 through 21st is the Feast of Tabernacles. And this one we see in the book of John. Jesus goes up in John chapter 7 and his, he tells his brothers, I'm not going to go. You guys go up without me. I'm not going to go. And then he goes after he tells them, I'm not going to go yet. You know, they go up and then he goes and he kind of secretly worships. I love that Jesus, the Son of God, God incarnate, wanted to worship without drawing attention to himself at times. How beautiful is that? Now that's a different point. It doesn't have much to do with this text. But we see that in the seventh month, we have this beautiful feast of booths that happens. This is the third major thing that happens in the month. And it's on the eighth day, after the seven days, on the eighth day, you're supposed to have a Sabbath rest. So 15th day through the 21st day is the feast. And then on the eighth day, you're supposed to have a Sabbath rest. You're supposed to not do any regular work, right? You shall rejoice. It says in in, uh, Numbers, you shall rejoice for seven days. Now this, this one was fun. This feast was fun. It was like a camp out. Everybody came out of their house and slept in tents. This was a fun thing. Like, this is like a dad and boy's dream. I get to camp outside, but I have all the amenities in my house right there. Right? I get to do the outdoor things with my son, but, I, but the house is right there. I can go in and out if I need to. I'm not necessarily starving for a bathroom. Like, there's stuff that we can take care of. So, This is the Feast of Booths. They're all camping in tents for seven days. It was to remind them of when they were wandering in the wilderness. When they were wandering in the wilderness and they were sleeping in tents and God himself was tabernacling with them, a people in tents, a people who don't belong. It was to remind them of that in the Exodus and it was to point them to their reality now and the future. The reality now is we don't belong on this earth. We have a greater kingdom that is to come, and we look forward to it. Like those in the wilderness look forward to the temple and the sacrificial offerings and everything being done there, we also look forward to a greater kingdom, a greater kingdom that's to come, that will be perfect, and that will be delightful, and that we will rejoice in the Lord and these tabernacles this feast of tabernacles was like a camp out that was to remind us of our freedom from egypt which is to point us to our current freedom from sin now to remind us of our wilderness wandering to point us to our current circumstance where there's a greater kingdom that we look forward to that we have not yet got that we are not yet home that this world is not our home but it's a place we are walking through to get home. It is eternal life that we look for, and we remember the past and look forward to the future. There's a great application to be had here with Christian faith. In our Christian faith, there have been many who have come before us. Many who have come before us, who have slept in tents, who understand what it's like to dwell in the wilderness, who know what it is like to be in a place that is not where they belong, but where they are placed for the time and to know that their belonging is in heaven. We have historical 
documents, confessions, uh, creeds, and things that you should delight in because they provide us some background as to who we are. They provide us, uh, one of the things I I love is that um, creeds and confessions that you can read in history are not, they're not, uh, they're not rules for us. They're not things that we have to impose on ourselves. They're rather kind of like guardrails of devotion that allow us to read and go, okay, for some reason they thought that was too far. So they put this in the book. They put this in their creed and confession. And we can look at history and we can go, okay, why did they think that was too far here? Why did they think that was too far? And then we can apply the principle now. This is why you read creeds and confessions. This is why you ought to be familiar with some of them. Uh, most of you who have ever heard Rich Mullins sing are familiar with at least the Apostles' Creed, right? Like, um, a lot of you are familiar with, with creeds and confessions, don't even know that you are. Uh, and yet, we've heard them. We hear them in songs. Uh, and if you want to learn more about creeds and confessions, i got a bunch of them, and I'll, I'll gladly let you borrow them. There's even a Bible that you can buy nowadays that has creeds and confessions, has a ton of them in the back. I think there's like 30 of them that are in the back of the Bible that you can just look up and read through and there's references as to where they got them out of scripture and where they, uh, there's little, the little uh, cross-reference things that have like the letter and it'll say at the bottom of the page, Heidelberg confession, you know, point such and such, such and such. Uh, You know, I'm glad that there are people who are engineer type minds that can write those things down because if it was just me, everything would be a picture and there'd be paintings everywhere. But instead, there are people who actually went through and outlined where people got things. It's beautiful. And we can, we can read those ancient creeds and confessions and we can see kind of the guardrails of where theology makes sense. And we can, we can look at them and sometimes we'll read them and we'll go, what were they talking about there? And then we'll investigate and we'll see, okay, well, that's not a, that they're addressing something that doesn't exist now, but what's the principle? And then we can apply that principle. It's good to look at the past and to festival and to be reminded of the, the, the joy of our pre- predecessors who came before us and to be reminded of their work and labor because it's good for you to know and it's good for us to understand and to build off what has come before. We look to the past so that we can also look to the future. We can look to the future and be reminded of when it will be perfect and glorious and have an eternal mindset and think about heaven and the joy of what it will be to be in heaven. So we remember the past to look to the future. Then in verse 2, we, all that, we got through one verse. Verse 2, we see, Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with the kinsmen, and they built the altar of God, of the altar of the God of Israel, to burn to offer burnt offerings on it, as was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, first, let's look at the people who are listed: Jeshua, Zerubbabel, and Moses, the man of God. You've got the high priest, you've got the king's representative, Zerubbabel, and you've got the prophet Moses, all listed there. The word of God, the kingship of God, and the priesthood of God. You've got those right there, prophet, priest, and king listed. But like I said, there's a warning, as always. 
there's a warning. Jeshua is not referred to as the high priest. He is the high priest. He's not referred to in this passage as the high priest. It's him and his fellow priests. Zerubbabel is a governor, not a king. He's from the line of David. He's from uh, Judah's line. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's a warning here in the text that this is not quite it. Moses, the law of Moses is there. The word of Moses is there. It's recorded. They've got the scripture. And yet, he is not present. He is not present. There's not a prophet present. So you've got this priest, king, prophet. And the warning notes that they're not quite there. Ezra's just giving you a taste. This is a shadow of what it's supposed to be. He's just giving you a taste. That this is a shadow of what it's supposed to be. That they require something more. They require something more. So they get together. These, these uh, leaders get together. In verse 3, they set the altar in its place. For fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. So let's talk about altars. First, altars are a place where ruined men can get access to God. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, Abraham gets the covenant from God. God gives him the covenant promise, says, you will be a blessing to all nations by your offspring. All the nations of the world will be blessed. It's the first time he gets the covenant. And then here in chapter, Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, it says, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel. That's the house of God the east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of Yahweh, the Lord. Bethel, as you know, means house of God. I means place of ruin. Abraham puts his altar, puts the altar of the Lord between the two. Between Bethel and I, and this is intentional. This is to show you that the blessing of God to the earth begins at the altar. Begins at the place of sacrifice. Where, God, where God's house can meet man's house. Where God's house can meet ruins. That's the altar. That's where this is. The altar is the place where ruined man can gain access to God's house. It is the space between ruin and God's holy habitation. Second, altars require sacrifice. Altars require sacrifice. There are two places I would take you to show you this. The first one is in uh, Genesis 22 when Abraham sacrifices Isaac and he says, I'm going to take my son to worship and then I will come back to you. Worship is sacrifice. Second place I'd take you to show this is uh, in, in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 24, verses 8 through 25, or 18 through 25. It says, And Gad came on that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord, the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, 
as the Lord had commanded. Now, David has just taken a census. He's gotten in trouble by taking the census. He knows he's not supposed to take a census. He gets incited. It's a weird passage. He gets incited by the Lord to take the census. It's very strange. God punishes Israel because David is incited by the Lord to take a census, and David goes through with it. There's a beautiful uh, theological term going on here called concursus, where man is making actions and has some agency and is doing things on his uh on his own, but the Lord is also moving at the same time. And so man is completely responsible for his own actions, but the Lord is not absent from it. This is the theological term concursus, meaning how can God hold man responsible for the things man does if God incites it? Well, the reality is that man still does them of his own accord. It's the same thing that you see in John chapter six, when it says, uh, all who come to me, I will not cast out. And those who come to me are those who the father draws. It's the same concursus. They're coming. It's their action. They're doing it. It's of their will. They're doing it. Yes, they are coming. And at the same time, yes, God is sovereignly orchestrating and directing things. This is called concursus, which is a fancy way of saying we're never going to get the whole thing. That's what that's a fancy way of saying. We're never going to grasp the whole thing. Theologians like to use big terms in order to describe what they don't know. This is one of them. Concursus. So you can jot it down in your Bible if you want to, but that's what's going on in 2 Samuel 24. David then sins against God, and then he has to repent. <coughs> and Gad tells him how. Go build an altar on the threshing floor of this guy's house, Aruna's house. So David goes to build an altar, and then it says this, And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on towards him, and Aruna went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. Aruna, a good citizen, sees the king coming, runs outside and falls on his face. Oh, what do I have? What did I do? This is what the, he's like, oh, I got to, I got to, the king's coming. This is great. I got to go out. And then as he gets out there, he falls down on the ground. This is a respect and an honor to David. And Aruna said, why has my Lord king come to his servant david said to buy a threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the lord that the plague may be averted from the people david knows from the voice of gad the prophet that in order to end the dying of people in order to end the death of people there must be a sacrifice made in order to end the plague that has been brought upon the people, there must be a sacrifice made. So he goes and he gets, <coughs> he gets Aruna and he says, I got to build an altar on your threshing floor. Then Aruna said to David, let my Lord, the King take and offer up what he seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. So Aruna goes, no, 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 no. You don't pay me for anything. You don't pay me for anything. Here's everything. You don't pay me for anything. Here's all my stuff. Here's everything. Here it all is. And, and he, he, he goes, I'm going to give this to you. You're going to do great. You're going to sacrifice. I'm going to give it all to you. You don't have to worry about anything. And then David responds, all this, O King Aruna, gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord God accept you. But the king said to Aruna. Now, I love that the Bible is so specific. The king. It's giving you a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus, 
does not take from you to offer sacrifice. Instead, he gives of himself. He gives all that he is for your sake. He gives all that he is for your sake. He dies on the cross for you. He who knew no sin became sin that you might become the righteousness of God. He gave everything for you. He gave gave it in your place. You didn't bring anything. You didn't get to offer anything. You 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 couldn't. There was nothing for you to bring. And Jesus sacrificed on your behalf that you would have life. This is the image that David is giving us here that Jesus sacrificed for you and David. <coughs> sorry. But the king said to Aruna, no, I will buy it from you at a, pri- at a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to my Lord that cost me nothing. Altars require sacrifice. Altars require sacrifice. Altars require sacrifice. So David brought the threshing floor the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Jesus offers his life in our behalf that we get free from sin and death. David teaches us a principle here that altars require sacrifice. If you are going to have an altar where God meets man, it is going to require sacrifice. It's going to require sacrifice. Altars are the place where ruined man can get access to God. Altars require sacrifice. Altars are a place of worship and obedience. Altars are a place of worship and obedience. This is the beautiful picture that we see of Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis where he goes to worship the Lord and takes his son to the altar. And in his obedience to the Lord, the Lord says, stop and provides a ram, a perfect spotless ram for him. Jesus is provided in Isaac's place. Isaac being the type for Christ, the son, the beloved son who would be sacrificed on our behalf. And Abraham worships the Lord by surrendering and he obeys the Lord by worshiping. This is, this is worship. Altars are a place of worship by obedience. This is Genesis 22, verses 4 through 14. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again with you. I always love to pause there and say, when somebody tells you they're going to worship and you're going with them, be aware that you are going to a place of sacrifice. And you might be the sacrificial offering. You are going so when your parents get you up in the morning and go, come, we're going to worship. What kind of worship are we going to do, Dad? You're not bringing fire and wood, are you? No, this, this is, that's a little silly, but at the same time, remember that worship requires sacrifice. The term worship here is the first time it's used in the Bible, and that means it's the, the version, uh, the, the definition that we should apply through the rest of Scripture. The law of first mention states that when a word is first used in the Bible, the context and use of that word 
should then be applied across the rest of, in particular, the Old Testament. This is the law first mentioned in biblical studies. It's a, it's a good one that you can apply most of the time. And this is one of the times that you can apply it. He says, stay here, the boy and I will go worship and come again to you. And then in Hebrews, he reminds us that God trusted, or Abraham trusted God so much that he would believe that there would be a resurrection uh, if he did sacrifice his son. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for, for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place where God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, this was not already built. He had to get the stones and build it. We know from scripture elsewhere that there's at least 12 stones to every altar. At least 12 large stones that they had to put in a certain order to make an altar. So this takes time. Altars require sacrifice. Altars take time to build. Altars take time to do it. It is intentional. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay a hand on your boy, on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Altars are a place of sacrifice and worship by obedience. Abraham obeyed and followed after the Lord and did what he said. And Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So altars are a place where ruined man can get access to God. Altars require sacrifice. Altars are a place of worship by obedience. Altars are also the beginning of spiritual warfare. Remember Elijah's story in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30. Elijah is going to battle the prophets of Baal, and he tells the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And you remember the story. He repairs the altar of the Lord. So they build it back up. A whole bunch of them build it back up together. And then he says, pour water on that thing. Put a moat around it. It's during the time of a drought. And he's like, take all the water and put it on that thing. So no one can take credit for this but God. And then he looks at the prophets of Baal. And he looks up to the to the God of heaven, and he says, Lord, let your people see. He's not concerned about the prophets of Baal. He knows their end. He knows that they're going to die. He's concerned about the people of the Lord. He says, let the people see your glory. Let them see you do this, that they may know, that they may know that you are God. And fire comes down from the sky, burns up everything. The water, the bull, everything. And then, The prophet Elijah slaughters 
by his own hand 400 prophets of Baal. The altar of sacrifice is where spiritual warfare begins. The altar of sacrifice, remembering Jesus for us. Remembering him and coming to him to lay all our sins at the altar. That giving over of sin and death, that handing it over is the beginning of spiritual warfare. It's not the end. Elijah still had to draw his sword and battle with false prophets. He still had to do that. He still, after doing that, had to run to a cave and be reminded that God is God in the whisper. He still had to do that. He's still nervous wreck half the time. But he knew that spiritual warfare began. The battle and victory of spiritual warfare begins at the altar, turning to Jesus and handing things to him and going, I can't handle this. I can't handle this. Surrendering to his guidance and his leading. That's and his leading. That's where the spiritual battle begins. So altars are the beginning of spiritual warfare. Then we have this great, this great verse in Romans chapter 12, which you should memorize. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is... This is how you surrender at the altar. This is how you do it, right here. This is it. Offer your bodies, your lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. So you pursue holiness. You surrender things. You, okay, we're American, but you fast occasionally. And not just for health reasons, but for spiritual reasons. You deny yourself some pleasures that are sometimes perfectly allowable for the sake of holiness. You live holy and right and just on this earth. We are Christians. We pursue holiness, not because we have to, but because we can. We pursue holiness because we can. You pursue holiness. You offer your bodies and lives as sacrifice to God as your spiritual act of worship. And how do you do that even further? You don't look like the world. You look different. You don't become conformed to the world. You don't act like the world. You don't follow what the world tells you to follow. You look different. You renew your mind in the Word of God. You renew your mind in the Word of God in the corporate worship with the saints. You renew yourself. You, you gather with the brothers in Hebrews. You, you refresh your, your mind with the Spirit in Ephesians. You are refreshing your soul by walking closely with Jesus in Colossians and in Ephesians. You, you do this that you would be a holy sacrifice to the Lord at the altar is where this begins. And then you do so that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is the will of God? Now, they begin to rebuild the altar here. And that's, I wanted to take the time just to go through what an altar is. And it, I'm, I'm, going, uh, I'm going really long, um, but bear with me. Don't worry, this is going to become a two-part sermon. So we've got, 
the second thing here, they build despite fear. There's this phrase in Hebrew, uh, a vav, a holom vav, which gives a, a, a conjunction. And this is kind of a contrastive conjunction. It's they build despite fear or because of fear. Look at uh, verse, <coughs> verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear or because fear or despite the fear that was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. So they set an altar in place, for fear was on them because of the, because of the people of the land. These, they are afraid. They are afraid. But they offer sacrifices morning and evening, as was prescribed in Numbers 28, verses 2 through 4. Now, I just want to encourage you, the answer to fear and anxiety in this world is worship. Worshiping Jesus at the altar. Sacrificial worship is the answer to these things. Sacrifice and worship is the answer. So they build in spite of fear. And the answer to fear here is worship in community and sacrifice. So you are worshiping together as a community and sacrifice as one people, as one voice. They come to the Lord as one person. And they worship in answer to the fear of the world. They bring worship and sacrifice. And then verses 4 through 6 here it says, And they kept the feast of booths as it, as it is written, and offered the daily offerings by number according to the rule as each required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. All is done here as it is written. These Brothers and sisters, model for us obedience to the Lord in worship. They do it as is written. One of the most profound questions you can ask is, how does God want you to worship him? How does God want me to worship him? It's one of the most profound questions that you could ask. It's also one of the ones churches never ask. And we should. We, we should. When we started Sovereign Grace, that was one of the questions we started with. How does God want us to worship him? How does he want us to do it? As it is written. So he... He wrote out for us in the scripture many of the things he wants for us to worship him. One of the things he wants for us from us in worship is new song. Sing to the Lord a new song with all your heart. He wants you making melody and song to him in your heart as a congregation. He wants you doing that. He wants you singing new songs. He wants you, he wants you praising his name. Another thing he wants you to do is pray and ask for him to move. Another thing, pray continuously. Pray without ceasing. You've got in Habakkuk, give me, you've got in Isaiah, give me no rest. Give me no rest until you see me come. In Habakkuk, I will stand on the wall and I will petition the Lord on behalf of the people. This is constant. God's saying, pray, pray. So we pray. In the New Testament, Timothy is told by Paul, dedicate yourself to the public reading of the word of God. All right, we do it. Beginning and end of every service, we do that. And that's just because if we miss it, then we failed to do something he asked us to do. The proclamation and proclaiming of the word of God. So we do that too. We do that as well. And then 
the last thing that we saw in Scripture that seemed to be indicating that this is what the early church did, something good for us to do too, is communion and eating together. Communion and eating together. Those are two things you find in Scripture that we are supposed to do. So as it is written, we bring our worship to the Lord. We bring our worship to the Lord just like they did, as it was written. Now they had specific rules and sacrifices they had to follow. As it is written, they came according to the rule. All that is done, all of it is done in the right time. In seventh month, seventh, first day they did this. Tenth day they did this. Fifteenth through twenty-first day they did this. They do it again in the next month. They do it again. They're bringing alterings according to the new moon, according to festivals. They're doing all this in the right time, at the right space, on the right days. We come together for corporate worship on Sunday because in the New Testament, that is called the Lord's Day. And it is a celebration of the recreation of our souls. We don't come on the seventh day. You're coming on the first day. You come on the first day because it's the Lord's day. And that is the day of celebration of the recreation of our soul. We remember when God began his creative work in the garden. We remember that Jesus restores our lives. He rose on the first day. So every day is Resurrection Sunday. Every day. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every single time, every single week, we rejoice in the Lord's coming. We come at the right time. We come at the right, uh, following the according to the rule and the word of God. We come at the right time. All is done with the right motives. Did you see in there that they give free will offerings? These are wealthy people who came back to Israel and they are surrendering, giving free will offerings. Now, their wealth is going to become a problem in chapter four. But in chapter three, they're doing great. They're giving free will offerings. It's wonderful. So chapter three, they're doing, they're doing the right thing. And we are reminded of our condition. But day is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus responds to the lady that says, Where, what hill are we supposed to worship on? The one Jacob dug at Jacob's well or are we supposed to worship on Jerusalem? Remember this in John chapter 4? The lady goes, which one? The Samaritans say over here. You guys say over here. Which one? Which one is it? And Jesus goes, neither. I'm the offering. God is spirit. You will worship true worshipers. will worship me in spirit and in truth. It's not about a location anymore. It's about Jesus. It's about a person. It's not about rules anymore. It's about privilege. We have the privilege of following the Lord not the rule. It's not about earning something anymore. It is about having it been given to you. And I would argue it's always been about the Lord giving it to you. In the Old Testament, it's constant that God says, you will work for six days to try and attain salvation. On the seventh day, you will stop and remember, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And then you're going to start over the next day. For six days, you shall work. On the seventh, you will rest. But this is the Lord who sanctifies us. This is Jesus Christ. He is king of glory. The returning exiles learn that they can worship without a building. They need the altar. They need the altar. And they begin to worship where the altar brings atonement for salvation. And I just want to jump to the last scripture I had. I told you this is going to be a two-parter. Here's all the notes that you were going to see. Okay. In Ephesians chapter 2, I want to remind you of this. You are no longer citizens and strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, 
built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are the temple of God. In him, you also are being built together in the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That we would grasp this, that we come to the altar together as a community in worship, that we lift high the name of Jesus together, and that in doing so, we will see the gospel advance, the kingdom advance, the Lord of glory make himself known. This is beautiful. You have been rescued and redeemed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have life and you have life eternal. Father, we pray this morning that you would be delighted in us as we delight in you. That your heart would be made glad as ours is made glad. That you would delight in our songs and the meditations of our hearts. Lord, we, we pray you would take our life, that we would be consecrated to you, that we would be people who follow hard after you. We love you and we trust you in all things.